Hi, and welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. This week, my guest is Monica Richter. She is a non-resident fellow at the European Values Center for Security Policy, as well as an analyst with Semantic Visions, a Prague-based risk assessment firm. But the reason we've had her on the show this week is prior to that, she was an analyst with the European External Action Services East Stratcom Task Force, which was designed to monitor and analyze disinformation and propaganda from hostile foreign powers. And Monica spent the better part of last year doing just that with respect to disinformation around the COVID-19 pandemic. She became, I think it's fair to say, an accidental or inadvertent whistleblower within Stratcom because, and I'll let her tell the story in more detail than I'm about to, but to give a pricey, she and her team had overseen and produced a study on Chinese government disinformation with respect to the pandemic, a study which was subsequently suppressed internally for what appeared to be political reasons uh, having to do with the EU's relationship to China, which we're going to talk about at length as well, given contemporary developments. And Monica raised a complaint internally internally with her organization, basically criticizing them for betraying their values and, you know, essentially self-censoring needlessly when this unit that she was part of was designed to call out, you know, examples of fake news and so on. And the email that she sent was subsequently leaked to the press and it caused a huge row and a huge scandal. And, you know, she eventually left Stratcom. And I'm sure has plenty to say about that. And our friend Joseph Burrell, who is essentially the foreign minister of the European Union, who I believe criticized her needlessly, gratuitously, and unfairly. Monica, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, we've talked at length offline about the European Union and its failure to confront not just disinformation, but hostile foreign intelligence operations, whether they're being perpetrated in Germany or France or countries that are even tilting more in a pro-Moscow direction, such as Hungary. Can you kind of explain in your own words sort of what happened at Stratcom? I mean, why did you... Why did you join this organization? What was the kind of work you were assigned to do? What was the work that you did do? And ultimately, how did this all sort of come a cropper? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, it's odd to be revisiting this, you know, basically a year later. But uh, I think that the lessons from that incident are pretty relevant to what we're seeing happening uh, today with the EU and um, its continued stumbles, unfortunately, vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China both. Basically what happened, well, let me rewind. So I, I joined East Stratcom in um, early 2019 um, on behalf of the um, Czech foreign ministry. Um, so the way that East Stratcom works is that member states can second their own national experts and pay them, in fact, you know, to this team. This is not the case for all of the um, East Stratcom members, but there is a large contingent of people that are seconded from member states who work on this agenda and we weren't EU officials. So I was basically selected by the Czech Foreign Ministry to join the team after my predecessor, um, Jakub Galinsky, who uh, is also recognized for uh, setting up EU versus Disinfo. He deserves much credit in that regard after he left for the Atlantic Council. So I joined in 2019. The team at the time was quite small. I mean, over the course of you know my, my term there, which was about a year and a half, we had anywhere between 12 to 16 team members thereabouts. And I mean, that is basically the, the contingent of people responsible for tackling specifically Russian disinformation on behalf of the European Union or the, the EU institutions. So 
Not a lot of people. When COVID-19 hit, our team basically was tasked by management to, you know, start preparing brief reports about the disinformation activities that, that we were seeing around the pandemic. Now, it's important to note that Easteratcom has a mandate specifically for Russia. So in 2015, in the European Council, member states basically decided that um, this task force should be set up to counter Russian disinformation operations. And that really stemmed from the 2014 annexation of Crimea and the, the, the significant uptick of, of Russian disinformation efforts following that. So what ended up happening was that, you know, we were tasked with preparing these, these disinfo reports about COVID. The focus was primarily on Russia, but of course, it was also necessary to look at other foreign actors in this regard. And I mean, specifically China. Chinese disinformation around COVID became a serious problem in the very early stages of the pandemic. And over the first several months of the pandemic going global, we saw a adoption of many previously, you know, Russian known disinformation tactics, like the spread of conspiracy theories by representatives of, of the state. We saw that um, coming from China as well. That was new. What were some of the conspiracy theories that they were propagating? Oh, you know, that the, the virus had been brought to Wuhan by the Americans, for example, by NATO soldiers. Uh, it was basically all an attempt to deflect responsibility for the origins of, of the pandemic. Right. We basically started in, in mid-March preparing these, um, these reports, and um, these were basically a, a product of the STRATCOM division at the EEAS, which is the division that is the, the parent of East STRATCOM. There are two other task forces, um, the Western Balkans Task Force and MENA Task Force for the Middle East and North Africa, that also increasingly work on, on exposing disinformation within their target regions. And so we basically jointly you know, started preparing um, these, these short overviews of the disinformation activity around the virus. And the initial intention was that these reports would basically be internal. Well, but because the EEAS or I mean, the EU institutions more broadly have absolutely no security culture, this first report that we wrote, of course, wasn't marked in any way. Right. You know, certainly wasn't classified. And so even though it was supposed to be internal, when it was circulated by our management to EU institutions and, and member states, it was leaked to the media. I see. And it, that was in, in mid-March. And the media narrative was that the EU was calling out Russian disinformation about COVID. Now, because the EEAS, of course, has its most developed capabilities on Russia, the focus of that first report was Russia and, and Russian disinformation. Well, that's what we were monitoring very actively beginning in from January. Well, and so that created quite a kerfuffle. And the response from the commission and, and you know, the, the EEAS management and the spokespeople was that we would basically create a public summary of that first report and put it online on the EU versus Disinfo website. Basically, you know, to, to deflect, you know, media uh, questions about this. And so that went live, you know, online, and then the whole process was repeated, you know, a couple of weeks later with a second report, you know, describing updates on what we were seeing. And then there was a third one. And the third one, uh, the third report was in uh, towards the end of April. Yeah. We had kind of, you know, found our, our rhythm with it. 
And it was the production of the report was managed by um, a colleague within the Stratcom division. Multiple people contributed to it, and it was a more comprehensive overview of what we were seeing from other actors. And you know, the the part on China was developed. So we had already you know prepared a public summary of this report as well that was ready to go live. And the internal version, which was again, I mean, you know, not marked in any way, but it had been circulated, you know, to member states, um, as well as, you know, others within the EU institution. So we're talking like circulation of hundreds of people, right? That ended up being leaked and Politico, Brussels playbook covered it and said that People should keep an eye out for the public summary that would be out, you know, within a day or two on the website, as the previous ones had been. Right. And we got really the day before we were supposed to, you know, hit publish on this this public summary that had already, you know, been approved by management, cleared. Um, it was ready to go. You know, we get an email from the EU delegation in Beijing saying that the Chinese had gotten wind of this and, you know, gotten wind of references in, in the report claiming that um, China was responsible for conducting a global disinformation campaign around COVID. And they were very displeased and they made, you know, vague threats about how the publication of such a report uh, or assessment would be very negative for EU-China relations. But this was the third public summary that you were going to publish. So presumably the Chinese could have simply read the first two public summaries and drawn conclusions from that. Why was this third report? Yes, which were not admittedly as critical vis-a-vis China because our, our focus had been on Russia. Right. And so obviously they had read at least a reported write-up of the full internal report, the third version. I mean, either that or they were going off of the, the Brussels playbook report that, yeah, you know, we basically get this heads up from the delegation in Beijing. Well, and it basically inspires an immediate stall of the publication of that public summary. You said they kind of vaguely threatened. What were they threatening to do to have, you know, upend trade? Yeah, it was not explicit. That's the thing. And this is this is exactly, you know, where I mean, this is what the CCP does, frankly. You know, they don't need to make explicit threats, right? They just make noise, you know, voice their displeasure, you know, make some vague, ominous threats. And it's enough for the Europeans to, you know, run backward with their tail between their legs. It's ridiculous. So, I mean, what was on the table at that point, right? It was the it was the Leipzig summit, which um, ended up being postponed. The um, the Germans were, you know, very invested in seeing that happen during the German um, EU presidency. Um, and then there was, of course, also a question mark at that point about the C, uh, CAI, if that was going to happen or not. There was a lot on the table in that regard that the Chinese explicitly have to say, these are the things that are on the table if you guys you know, publish this. No, they didn't make such an explicit threat. But it was, it was clear enough to the EU. Yeah. I mean, it was part of what makes that sort of thing so effective is that you don't really know what they're willing to do, right? We basically got a write-up from the delegation Beijing. So, of course, you know, we were working on the basis of limited information as well. We didn't really know the the full extent of, of the exchange or maybe other people you know, higher up did, but we at the working or analytical level, you know, we, we did not. The report gets stalled. And that decision came basically from, you know, middle management all the way up to Borrell's cabinet. I had sort of sent an initial email, almost laughing off this, you know, message from the Chinese, 
and saying that, you know, I hope it will have no effect on our, you know, decision to publish as planned. And I didn't have a response to that. And the email you sent was to members of your own team or to... Oh, yeah. And I mean, basically, there was a thread going around, you know, that had, I don't know, a bunch of us, both at the analytical level, as well as, you know, our management going fairly high up. I actually think that there were people even from Borel's cabinet that were that were on this thread. It was a pretty big group. You know, I never had problems voicing my strong opinions about these. Yeah, I've seen your Twitter feed. I, I can attest. Yeah. <laughs> so this was this was not out of character, right? Right. I had a reputation for advocating for stronger responses in, in general and just simply, you know, not not tolerating or appeasing autocratic bullying. So anyway, that that first email, you know, went um, went unaddressed. Well, and then I think that what followed was basically an email from Borrell's cabinet saying that we should basically edit the report, the public summary, mind you, the internal one had gone out, right? That was in its final form that could not be retracted, but edit the public summary before publishing it to say that, um, or to not focus on two primary actors, i.e. Russia and China. There were references, you know, to disinformation coming from other sources, I think, including, you know, the Americans. And so it it was basically, you know, we shouldn't focus on two actors, you know, we should have a more generic actor agnostic overview. Spread the blame around. Well, at that point, you know, I basically sent an email to, again, continuing on this thread to everyone, including Borel's cabinet, basically saying that I think that this is categorically, you know, the wrong decision, that it amounts to appeasing the Chinese Communist Party. And I implored my higher ups basically to rethink their decision. I mean, that was the purpose of the email. At that point, we, you know, we, we, hadn't, we hadn't done anything. Oh, and the other thing that, that really bothered me, uh, that really set me off was that because the public report had been delayed, uh, questions started coming from journalists. Where is the public report? Right. And the response from the institution was no public report was planned. And we got a line to take from our higher ups, basically, you know, saying if we, i.e. the analysts, you know, if we personally got any messages or requests from journalists or anyone about where where the report was, you know, we were supposed to say that no public report was planned. So we were basically instructed to lie. Wow. If you were going to release a public summary of an internal report and that summary was at odds or even contradicted the findings of that report, that itself becomes a media scandal potentially, right? Yeah, exactly. And in fact, that was precisely what I warned in my email, right? I said, look, we know that someone in the media already has the internal version. If we come out with something that is dramatically different from that original, then we are going to look like complete idiots. Right. It's going to be terrible. And that, you know, was not really taken into consideration well. And, you know, the email that I subsequently got back to that was, you know, we don't want to discuss this in writing. You know, let's have a call. So just to be clear, an organization within the European Union designed to monitor and presumably also counter disinformation, which is a fancy word of a fancy way of saying lies, was instructed by the European Union to lie about its own work countering lies. Is that accurate to say? Yeah. And I mean, what was particularly hilarious, well, hilarious is one way of describing it, 
about the whole thing was, um, you know, that I tried to explain that this is precisely how disinformation foreign influence efforts work. It's not merely to create a certain outcome, right? In this case, not publishing the report. It's also to create chaos and tension internally within the targeted institutions. Right. And so really it was all in that regard itself, even though the report did end up, you know, getting published ultimately in partly diluted form, I'll get to that. But I mean, even the internal mismanagement of the whole thing, the second guessing, yeah. all of that was a victory for the Chinese. The fact that it happened so publicly, that there was so much leaking, that all of this happened in the public eye, that it was an embarrassment for the EEAS. This was all a disinformation success. Right. And tell me, how the hell does an institution that has a task force for disinformation operative basically since um, the end of 2015, beginning of 2016, you know, that has supposedly been fighting this threat for so long. How does it get caught in such a trap? Yeah. It was laughable. It was pathetic. So at what point does your email come to light? So this was the original email you wrote saying this is categorically the wrong thing to do, or did you write another email on top of that? No, no, no. That was, yeah, that was it. It was, it was one email, you know, the response to which was, let's have a call, you know, nothing else over email. And mind you, I mean, this was the beginning of the pandemic. So everyone had started teleworking. So everything was happening via email. Yeah, we were having conference calls, but basically everything was done over email at that point. So it's not like there was an opportunity for a meeting to discuss this you know, even via VC, everything was happening over email, which is why, you know, I was subsequently blamed that, you know, I should have known better than, you know, to put something that critical in writing, because of course it was going to get leaked. But A, such internal correspondence leaks had never previously happened to my knowledge, certainly not in the time that I had been at the EU. That was really unprecedented. And it was frankly despicable. I mean, that sort of stuff, you know, should not be exposed precisely because it weakens the institution without a doubt. But it was this, this claim that, you know, I should have known better that something like that was going to be leaked. Right. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. And how did it get leaked to the press? It went to Politico or went to another outlet? No. Well, that thread of emails, my email was first cited that went to the New York times, but the leaks about this whole situation had started several days prior. Um, Originally, I think it was the BBC that started it our sense. And I mean, we don't know, there was in the end an administrative investigation into the leaks, but of course that yielded no conclusive results about how any of this got out. I mean, it was basically an administrative witch hunt to intimidate people and get them to, to, to fall in line. And granted, again, I mean, leaks like that shouldn't happen. So I understand. Which I mean, if you're saying it like that, just to be clear, you were not the one who leaked this to the press yourself. No, absolutely not. It didn't even occur to me that that, was, that that was a possibility. What I did do was that I informed the Czech foreign ministry about what had happened and or what was happening. And that was my prerogative as a Czech seconded national expert. Right. I probably should have said in my introduction that you, you're a Czech national and you're also, is it Canadian and American or just Canadian? Yes, all three. All three. Okay. But you're working, right. So you're working on behalf of the Czech Foreign Ministry, and obviously they have the right to know what one of their... Yeah. In fact, this was stipulated in my in my contract with them, that if anything of relevance or, or, or significance to, you know, Czech foreign policy happens in my, you know, field of mission, then, you know, it's basically my duty to inform. 
Right. So then the New York Times gets a hold of this com internal communication. You're seen as a, an internal critic, if not an internal dissenter for a, a Stratcom decision and shit hits the fan, right? Yeah. And, and by the way, it's also worth noting that my sentiments were were not unique. Sure they weren't. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, my my colleagues, people, you know, also who, you know, work on on the regional desks, right, outside of Stratcom, like the China desk, right? I mean, there was serious concern about this and serious displeasure with the with the cabinets handling of, of what was happening. I was basically, you know, one of the only ones to speak out. I'm sorry, not to speak out, but to basically say to my superiors, right, that this is a decision that I disagreed with. I mean, for God's sake, right, this should not be, this should be completely appropriate, right, in any democratic institution. Yeah, I mean, you're, you know, you're, you're just tracking things that you see in the open source domain, which other people could easily see themselves. And, you know, by the way, the EU is completely free to reject or to simply not act upon your findings yeah. in this regard and, and, and say, well, screw it. We don't care about disinformation. We don't care about human rights abuses. We're just going to carry on with commercial trade deals with China. Which is basically the reality of, Correct. of it, though they don't say it, right? Just to kind of tie up the story. So once the email is leaked and it becomes kind of a public and private scandal, you take the decision to leave, you resign, right? No, no. So there's, there's more to it than that. So the, the New York Times story comes out, a bunch of other coverage comes out. And then the decision is made basically within like a day to publish a revised version of the public report. And so in the end, it's funny because the, the public summary went out for example, with the removal of some references, like references to a Chinese global disinformation campaign that was taken out because the Chinese complained about it. You know, there was a case of Chinese criticism and disinformation about French nursing home workers letting people die in nursing homes of COVID. That example was taken out because the Chinese had specifically complained about that as well. And then the whole section on China was the, the title of it, uh, or the, you know, the section header was removed and other points about Chinese disinfo were basically relegated under a section, quote unquote, other actors. This report is still live on the website, to my knowledge, so people can go look at it. I don't remember all of the details. But in the end, were there still references to, to Chinese disinformation? Yes. So it's not like they were removed entirely. It was basically this attempt to kind of, you know, have your cake and eat it too, to remove, you know, the most sort of controversial points that the Chinese had complained about, right? Remove, you know, this naming and shaming on China. It was very weird. I mean, if you're going to censor something, then, you know, maybe censor it properly. Right. <laughs> It just, it reflects poorly on Stratcom and the European Union and makes them look like a bunch of weak-willed and also completely disingenuous assholes, frankly, right? Yes. I mean, that's, yes. and as you point out, that in and of itself is a success of an influence operation. You know, you make your enemy, it's reflexive control, right? I mean, you make your enemy make unforced errors, right? And that this is a, the classic case of, of a series of unforced errors. Exactly. So how, how did it, this all kind of come well, and then, I mean, then there was basically, you know, a witch hunt. Borrell yeah. was called to a European Parliament hearing to testify about what had happened. 
in which he basically criticized me, not by name, but individually. And for anyone who'd been following the story, it was clear who he was talking about. He said something like, um, uh, you know, in response to critical questions from MEPs, he said, you know, I don't know why you would give credibility to the personal opinion of a member of staff leaking emails to damage the credibility of the institution. He accused you of being a leaker too, which is a lie. Yes, it was a lie. But I mean, at that point, right, there had been absolutely no investigation into what had happened. You know, it was uh, his personal opinion that he was, um, yeah, I mean, voicing in a very public forum. That w- that came as a shock, right? So, I mean, he really did not stand by by his staff. Well, and then, you know, as the scandal continued to develop, there were other blunders and So at one point when um, our boss, the head of the strategic communications division, when he was asked by a journalist, you know, why the publication of the public report had been stalled, he threw his own team under the bus and said it was because the conclusions in our original report, you know, had to be verified, that there were questions about, you know, the accuracy of the analysis. It was astonishing. It was, it was spineless. It was despicable. Presumably this guy had read the conclusions when they were a secret kept internally. Oh, he was, he was personally responsible for greenlighting this. I mean, he had greenlighted the first version that was supposed to be published. Yes. And then he was the one ultimately who made, who made the changes as well, because the person, my colleague who had been responsible for um, managing the report and all of the contributions, he, he refused to soften it. He basically said he wasn't comfortable doing that. So that's just to illustrate that, I mean, there was there was a lot of internal opposition to the whole handling of the situation. The foreign minister, in effect, of the European Union says your opinions aren't worth anything and falsely accuses you of being, being the leaker. And then your boss doubles down by saying, oh, and by the way, the conclusions that you presumably had a role in making yourself in this report um, were bad. So you're, you're being accused of being incompetent. You're being abused, accused of, of betraying, I guess, the uh, privacy and sanctity of this organization. So it's not just being thrown under the bus. I mean, you're being vilified by your own employer. Yeah. What was really awful was then the attempted crackdown, um, you know, that that inspired against Eastrack Common. In fact, the EEAS has long had an issue with national experts who are seconded from member states because their loyalties are quote unquote split, right, towards the member states and their seconding institutions at home and the EEAS. But of course, the reality is, you know, as much as the EEAS would like to have, you know, autonomy and likes to show it, like, you know, when Borrell insisted, despite everyone else's opposition to go to Moscow, you know, they, they insist on having, you know, autonomy, but really the institution exists to serve the interests of member states, right? I mean, that's how European foreign policy works. So it, it was just ridiculous. Well, and then the kicker was, and, you know, I don't want to get into the details on this, but I mean, there was a very nasty attempt by the EEAS to intimidate the Czech government, specifically the Czech foreign ministry, into not supporting me. And so um, there uh, actually, there was a phone call between Borrell and the Czech foreign minister, where apparently Borrell made negative insinuations about the future of Czech experts 
in East Stratcom. And uh, something similar happened as well between the um, section of the EAS and the Czech ambassador to the EU. I mean, I have that information secondhand because um, I was basically excluded from all of this. But yeah, I mean, ultimately the... Did Prague stand behind you? Did the Czech government do what EU Stratcom did not, which is defend you or... Unfortunately, the Czech foreign ministry did not. That was ultimately my the, the reason for my decision to leave because, you know, the work that they had asked me to do, of course, it requires a degree of moral courage and also the tenaciousness to, you know, swim against the current in an institution that is, um, you know, pathologically opposed to dealing with this agenda in any um, meaningful way. It's a hard job in that regard. It's, it's really tiring. You're, you're constantly fighting against people uh, or against a bureaucracy that, you know, doesn't think that this is a, a serious threat, that doesn't recognize even the existential conflict that we face today between democracy and authoritarianism and the necessity to choose a side and fight for it. That was always, you know, very discouraging for me. Yeah. But you know, I, had a, I had a very good relate working relationship, you know, with, with my Czech colleagues, you know, up until this happened, they were pleased with my work. They did want me to take a stand. This agenda was important um, or is important for the Czechs, without a doubt, they have now seconded a new person there who is um, actually a, a diplomat from the foreign ministry because the EEAS basically said you can't send anyone external. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, by definition, a diplomat is not is somebody who <laughs> has to engage with foreign powers, including and especially hostile foreign powers in a way that an analyst does not. In other words, this is somebody who is designed to kind of pull punches and be, well, for lack of a better term, diplomatic about things, whereas somebody who's, you know, doing the work of monitoring disinformation is just supposed to tell the truth. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, partly it's, it's a design flaw. The task force and this agenda in particular should not be housed under EU's diplomatic institution, right? I mean, there's a contradiction mandate there. So yeah, I mean, it is a design flaw, but still, I mean, that doesn't excuse the um, enduring impotence and um, weakness in dealing with, with this threat. Yeah. Well, now let, let's bring it up to date. We've seen, well, obviously we saw Burrell abase himself in Moscow and be almost roundly criticized for that. Uh, including by his own colleagues in the European Union. And we had a few weeks ago, your colleague, Natalie Vogel, on the show to kind of explain. <laughs> he was very, very uncorked about her opinions about uh, the Spanish socialist, as she called him, uh, Mr. Burrell. But now, interestingly enough, and I suppose ironically enough, given what you've been through, there is a Freudure developing between China and the European Union over the fact that the EU just sanctioned, I think, 10 Chinese state officials for what U.S. government officials are pretty nakedly calling the genocide of the Uyghur Muslim population. And this has now upended the relationship between Beijing and Brussels. Borrell, if he was trying to avoid this kind of confrontation, is now eyeball deep in one. What do you make of these latest developments? And do you think that this is going to alter the nature of Stratcom's work in countering Chinese disinformation? I mean, there's a lot there. First of all, the one good thing in the, the Chinese overreach on the um, response sanctions, which of course target NEPs as well, means that there's virtually no chance that the investment agreement is going to clear it through parliament. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that there is this enduring naivete within the EU. And by that, I mean, you know, the EU institutions as well as the member states. It is going to be possible basically to compartmentalize our engagement um, with the CCP based on the things that we want to cooperate on and those that we want to criticize that we can basically engage on things like economic integration and cooperation on climate change without simultaneously exposing ourselves to the corrupting and insidious anti-democratic influences of of the CCP. The reality is that that is a, a Faustian deal. That's just not how these countries work. It's the same with the Chinese and with the Russians. They are very smart in recognizing that this is how um, democracies and particularly the European Union, you know, works, that there is basically a separation of powers and a a separation of activity on on different agendas. Whereas in those countries, everything is, is sort of, you know, monolithic. Everything is controlled from the top down. You don't do economic integration and climate change, for example, separately, right? I mean, those are all sides of, of the same coin and they're all used in, in a synchronized manner to achieve foreign policy goals. You said, you said something earlier, which I wanna come back to and I found fascinating, which is that the disinformation schemes that you were tracking very often replicated what the Russians had put out already. So in other words, the Chinese are learning from what Moscow does. They're, they're kind of co-opting or kind of piggybacking off of um, these pioneer of operations. Yeah. What I'm seeing now, and I, I'm wondering what your view is on this as somebody who is watching this, whether it's this delegation that came to Alaska and read the riot act to Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, citing American social chaos from you know the Black Lives Matter movement to whatever else they they adduce there. Uh, how dare you Americans, arrogant Americans, criticize us for human rights abuses. That very much seems redolent of kind of the Russian playbook. You know, um, in, in the Soviet era, it was, um, you couldn't talk about the gulag without being told about segregation or Jim Crow, right? That was the reflexive response. Now you're also seeing another kind of information campaign. Don't talk about the plight of Uyghurs or don't criticize Russian human rights abuses, I'm sorry, Chinese human rights abuses or Chinese intelligence schemes from hacking to running spies. I mean, they just caught one in Estonia who had infiltrated NATO scientific research center. Don't do that because it leads to the uptick in anti-Asian hatred in the United States, right? Which also seems to me very... um, reminiscent of the idea that the Mueller report was leading to rampant, quote, Russophobia in America, though I don't recall ever seeing a single example, unlike the case of anti-Asian hatred, which is well documented, and we, we just saw that last week. I don't remember seeing a single example of an ethnic Russian being attacked on the streets because, you know, there was a counterintelligence investigation into the President of the United States having to do with Russian intelligence schemes. Do you think that that the Chinese government is essentially learning from the Kremlin? Yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly in context, you know, of the um, bravado of their of their disinformation yeah. in context of the COVID pandemic. I mean, I would really describe that, you know, what we've seen is authoritarian learning in real time. It's a matter of, you know, regime survival. This has been documented before. Um, authoritarian regimes learn from each other 
to enhance their their survival skills and to basically push back against international um, liberal democratic norms with the goal of basically making the world, you know, safer for their corruption and excesses. That's, I think that's definitely something that we saw from the, or the Chinese learning from the Russians. Right. And the, the one thing that stood out to me, in fact, in the, well, many things stood out to me in the ODNI report, which came out last week, but the conclusion of the American intelligence community was that the Chinese government, Chinese intelligence did not attempt to interfere in the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Everyone else did. Russia did, of course. And in fact, we had Thomas Ritt on the show last week who said that they, if anything, they expanded the scope of their interference mechanisms. Venezuela, Cuba, Iran, Hezbollah, everybody but the Chinese, because the Chinese had reckoned they didn't want to rock the boat, right? They didn't want to, to however way the, the election went, they, they wanted to have normal relations with Washington. Now I wonder, as there's this increased tension and an escalation, certainly in rhetoric and now indeed in economic punishment through sanctions, if in 2024, that might change. Uh, we might see whether Chinese military intelligence or foreign intelligence you know, getting screwy with um, troll factories or even running like a human intelligence operation to try and, and sway an American election. I don't know. I know that's kind of outside your remit, but I'm, I'm just curious to know what you think in terms of how they might, because as you, as you point out, they, they both kind of parrot other authoritarian regimes and they're very adaptive to changes in the culture. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely think that, that it's possible. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a China expert, um, per se. So that is not a question that is best directed to me. But, you know, I certainly think that, especially as they see the Biden administration, not softening the tone vis-a-vis -vis China, that that is going to create, you know, increasing frustration and um, the possibility for further disruption. You know, I have to say that I personally am very gratified by how steadily um, the Biden administration appears to be holding the line um, on China. I think that that policy continuity is really remarkable. It's, I mean, it's remarkable bipartisanship, right? And I mean, in the in the domestic context of U.S. politics, right, where policymaking on virtually every issue is hamstrung by reflexive par uh, partisanship. We think that that consensual approach is really nothing short of extraordinary. So yeah, I, I think that, you know, it appears that there really is sufficient political will um, in Washington to, to get things done on China. And it, it remains to be seen how the CCP is going to um, respond to that. Yeah. Well, it also doesn't strike me as coincidental that the European Union seems to be getting a little more proactive in as a result, or, you know, certainly in tandem with a new administration that seems to at least pay lip service to human rights atrocities and what needs to be done about them. So who knows, maybe one day you'll get a, uh, a written apology from Joseph Borrell. Uh, that's, that's highly unlikely. <laughs> well, no, I mean, this has been both intriguing, but also incredibly depressing to hear because, you know, again, we, we look to our European allies to kind of stand, not just with the United States, but stand on the principles of democracy, transparency, and frankly, just a, a basic regard for the truth that can't be swayed or cowed by commercial interests, which unfortunately they have been. Well, listen, um, it was great to have you on. And uh, I hope our listeners have a better sense of kind of the internal rot at the heart of so many government bureaucracies in the West. You know, the, the great thing here is like, this wasn't some kind of elaborate campaign. It was just essentially kind of mild intimidation. And then your colleagues essentially did the rest of the work for the Chinese Communist Party just by behaving so 
cowardly. Well, the work I've been doing, but also I think on this show is that it's not that the other side, the opposition is so powerful and sophisticated, it's that we're so pathetic most of the time. That's the greatest asset that they've got. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And um, my experience with the EU has really left me profoundly concerned um, about Europe's ability to adapt to the shifting um, geopolitical landscape of the 21st century. And just to, I mean, repeat what I said right before, that means facing up to the defining and really existential conflict of our time, which is between democracy and authoritarianism. And that's really not fear-mongering or, or simplistic binary thinking about um, good and bad. It's really a deliberate and considered reading of the unprecedented security challenges that face um, the global community of liberal democratic states and the very states at play. Well, I'm glad you, you told this story. Uh, I'm glad you're continuing in the work that you're doing, albeit for private enterprise now, not for government, although that's probably better. And I hope to have you back on to discuss whatever other disinformation operations you manage to expose in future. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was great. You've been listening to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss. Thanks a lot.